0: Dr MacArthur thank you again for the privilege to sit and talk with you here for this edition of the G3 podcast. My pleasure. Yeah, thank as you we for inviting me Josh. Sure. Yeah, as we talk about the sovereignty of God and as we think about the national conference the theme will be focused on the sovereignty of God. Now many people either misrepresent the sovereignty of God or they misunderstand it. And so help us understand what's a good basic definition of the sovereignty of God. Well, the simple definition is that God
1: rules over everything. That means absolutely everything, down to every molecule and every atom in the universe.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And when we think about that very issue, as you mentioned, every atom in the universe, the typical evangelical today, it seems is happy to have a big God who is sovereign over creation or who orders the stars of the sky um, or who may be able to be engaged when it comes to the political affairs of the international community. But when we start to become more specific dealing with the sovereignty of God and salvation, oftentimes people start to possess a a bit of a a defensive posture. Why do you think that that's the case?
1: (laughs) Because the primary sin of the human fallen heart is pride and self-will. And even when you've come to Christ and been forgiven and been made a new creation, there are vestiges of human pride there. And because we tend to reflect the culture that is even multiplied in its effect, being raised in a democracy, we think we ought to have a vote. I mean, it comes down to that. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. People are happy to have God be in charge of everything in general, but nothing in particular. And I think sometimes um, they're afraid that if you make God in charge of everything, he's going to get all the flack for allowing evil to happen. And that that is the hard question. When you deal with God's sovereignty, you have to understand that within the framework of his sovereignty, He designed evil to fit in his purposes. And I think you have to also understand that his sovereignty doesn't mean that he controls directly every thought, every idea, every action, every motion, every decision of human beings, but rather that he orchestrates everything to the end of his predetermined will which is an, a miracle beyond imagination. It would be one thing to say he controls everything, and that would be a simple way to say, well, of course, if he controls everything, he gets what he wants at the end. But God gets what he wants at the end without controlling everything totally. So there is, um, there is expression of the human will and volition within the framework of God's sovereignty, but the outcomes are always
0: what he predetermined. Mm, Yes, very good. You mentioned the problem of evil, and you talked about that just a moment ago. As we talk to people or hear people talking about the devil, oftentimes they will be fearful of the devil. But Martin Luther made a statement years ago. He said, the devil is God's devil. Mm -hmm. So when he, he made that statement, I think it's extremely important to understand the backdrop, obviously, but what he was experiencing in his day and the the fights that he was involved with. But why is that statement so important as we think about God's absolute sovereignty? Well, because
1: you want to make sure that God is in charge. I'll give you an illustration. Uh, Not far from our church here, there was the largest charismatic church in this region and um, a few years ago we started having an influx of people coming from that church to our church and actually there were so many of them i met with them kind of in mass and i think there were at least five or ten of them who were staff members in that church and i said what what happened in your church why did you come here and this was the standard answer well we couldn't live under the sovereignty of satan Mm -hmm. and i said tell me more about that um we were told that we had to worry about Satan being in our homes, being in our children's bedrooms, um, controlling our lives, overwhelming us with disease, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, obviously, if people don't want to live under the sovereignty of Satan, and they don't have to. And along the way, at some point, they heard a sermon I preached on the sovereignty of God, and it was as if it was the the answer that their hearts were crying for and they walked out of what they perceived as the sovereignty of Satan into the safety of the sovereignty of God. So Satan is God's devil, and Satan is bounded by God's purposes. I mean, that becomes very clear in the book of Revelation when Satan is bound during the millennial kingdom for a thousand years along with all of his demonic hosts. The Lord has complete and total control over him at all times. And even the devil running loose in the world is accomplishing God's divine ends with the wicked and sometimes even with believers. Because you remember the apostle Paul prayed three times for a thorn in the flesh to be removed and he said it was a messenger of Satan. Well, what do you mean that a messenger of Satan attacking an apostle? Yes, and messenger is angelos. So what's a satanic angel? A demon. Some demons doing damage to the Corinthian church and Paul that they would be removed. And the Lord said no, and Paul prayed again, and the Lord said no, and Paul prayed again a third time, and the Lord said no. And then he understood that by the difficulty of that demonic intrusion into his church, the Lord was humbling himself because he had so much that exalted him. So the Lord actually used the forces of Satan to humble the Apostle Paul. So in whatever case the demons operate in the world, With the unbelievers or with the believers, they're under the control of the sovereign God.
0: Hmm. To be more practical, as we think about the the sovereignty of God, the doctrine of God's sovereignty, in more practical terms, how should the the doctrine of God's sovereignty impact our typical worship service on the Lord's Day? Well, first of all, as an act of worship, you, you have to acknowledge it
1: right? You, mm-hmm. you want to make sure that you're worshiping. Uh, John 4 comes to mind. Uh, Jesus said, the Father seeks true worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. And I think acknowledging God as God is essentially acknowledging him as sovereign. Uh, look, if he's God, he's sovereign, because if he's God, he's the source of everything that exists. He's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the consummator of everything, therefore, he has to be sovereign. There can't be any greater power outside of him because anything else that exists, he created. And by definition, he is greater than. So I think in terms of uh, how we worship him, I think we have to start with his sovereignty and understand that not only is that comforting for us in the hard times, but it's comforting for us in the challenges of life, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent because He is working out His purpose in everything. And that's Romans eight twenty eight, right? Mm. All, all things are working together for good because God is working them that way,
0: no matter what they are. Mm. Very good. As we look at the evangelical culture today, we see many different debates that are raging. We see all sorts of various different controversies that are plaguing the church. One of the debates that's happening today is this debate that really puts a distinction between the office and the function of elder. And so the pressing issue is, and the question is, should women be permitted to preach in the context of the Lord's church? Now the mainline Protestant churches have already given over to these issues and they have elders that are women within the context of their churches. But as we think about the more conservative circles that are having these very conversations, what would be your counsel to them on this issue? Well, I think it's absolute.
1: I permit not a woman to teach or to usurp authority over a man. If, uh, you, if a woman wants to know anything, let her ask her husband. I, that is, there's no ambiguity in that whatsoever. And it's not any kind of commentary on the spiritual equality of women. Of course, in Christ, we're all one. There's neither male nor female. It's, it's not a commentary on women as something less than. It simply identifies them as different than. Men are given the responsibility of leadership throughout society. I mean, that's God's design for marriage in, inside and outside the church. So again, I, I think it's kind of the Eve issue. Um, you know, Eve got out from under Adam and led the whole human race into sin. Um, women are designed by god to be helpers and to be protected under the headship of their husbands and uh, that is that is played out throughout the scripture and in particular if you look at the bible for example 66 books none of them authored by a woman that that is a pretty pretty compulsive case for male leadership you have 66 books none by a woman a couple of them had to do with a woman, Esther and Ruth, but not written by a woman at all. So I think you have illustrations of that. And then when you come to the apostles, uh, none was a woman. There were women who traveled with Jesus and who served and uh, who were discipled by him and who did all kinds of ministry, but none of the apostles was a woman. We don't have any women ordained in all the New Testament churches. We don't have them ordained as elders. We don't have them as pastors. Uh, Romans 16 talks about them as servants or deacons, so they have a role to play equal spiritually, but their very defined role is different than that of a man. So what what reason would there be biblically to to overthrow that? Uh, I I look at it as a rebellion. I look at it as a rebellion generated by a hard attitude of self-promotion, not because somehow you found a, a verse hiding somewhere in the Bible that, that changed uh, what you thought was the truth.
0: Yeah, very good. As we look at the, the culture around us, the, the days become more and more dark and Jesus was very clear to His followers that they would experience trouble in this world. And as we look at the world and we see the pressures that continue to grow against God's church, as persecution becomes more common, even within the context of America. What what counsel would you give? What encouragement would you give to God's people as they continue to experience more and more pressure for following after Christ? Well, there's a a lot of ways to approach that, but let me just start by saying this. The
1: current scene of the elevation of persecution and the cancel culture And the hostility toward the church is going to mount. It's going to get worse because there's an uh, an effort and it's a widespread effort and it's a ground up effort that um, rejects dissidents, rejects somebody who's outside the narrative. And the hostility is going to come at the church because we speak with authority. We're not offering opinions. We speak with authority. So this must be, first of all, this must be a terrible nightmare for churches that hooked up to the world. Mm. For all the mega churches and all the, the market-driven churches and, and all the worldly churches and all the seeker-friendly churches who decided they were going to be buddy up with the world and see if they could make the world like the church. Now, this has got to be a nightmare. And, you know, I've been saying this for, for months now. If you hook your church to the world in any sense at all, it'll drag you to the bottom. And at some point you're, you're going you're to drown. It's going to be over. It's, it's going to kill the church or you're going to have to let go. Because you could say, well, you know, we just want to do the music they like or, or we just want to communicate in, in language they like or we, we want to take the formality out of the church and make it casual and, and make it more contemporary. And you can say all of that about the form of things, but eventually the world is going to hate your message if your message is the truth. And they'll, they'll accept your concessions and then they'll demand that you change the message. And when the, when the world turns on the church, then what does the church do that has made friends with the world? I mean, James says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. That ought to be enough to keep you from doing that. But what a nightmare it is now for those churches to try to court the world. And now the world is hostile toward Christianity and that's going to be escalating. What are they going to do? And you know, that's going to be a referendum on the integrity of the leadership of those churches as to whether they will compromise to maintain some kind of friendship with a world that's going to become more and more hostile more and more demanding of LGBTQ, more and more demanding of transgender, more and more demanding of sexual freedom, more and more demanding of abortion and just about anything and everything else. Um, More and more demanding of racial animus. They're going to demand all of that and we're going to find out who's true. The referendum is going to happen. And there are going to be churches that are just taken take to the bottom and they'll they'll disappear as far as any valid ministry goes. So I would hope before that happens, churches that have made an alliance with the world will separate themselves in the way that they should. So for the faithful church, we, we have to understand that we're just entering a time that has been true for churches for 2,000 years. We, we've just had a reprieve in the United States for the last couple of centuries. Mm-hmm. We had enough of an alliance between Judeo-Christian morality and the culture so that the church was not overtly hated by the culture. Mm. Uh, But that's changed because the culture has abandoned all morality. I I like to think of it, and I I read these terms all the time, not as a postmodern church. This is a pre-Christian church. In other words, it's no different than Rome before Jesus came. I mean, we're back, it's as if 2,000 years of Christian history never happened. It, it, we're back mutilating children, slaughtering infants in the womb. And if they survive the womb, cutting off their genitals and breasts and, and exposing children to people having sexual fantasies in open public places in elementary schools, the level of deviancy and sexual perversion has taken its greatest toll on the young in this generation. And, and it's, it's destroying lives, particularly of young people, even elementary kids, but I think so often of the bulk of these transitioning junior high girls that are being sucked into this by groomers on TikTok and the internet. So th- this is a pre-Christian culture. This is as if Christianity never existed So I wouldn't expect any kind of uh, response that would be different than what the Romans wanted to do to the church, because this is a culture very much like Rome. And they went after the Christians, and they slaughtered them, and they threw them to the lions, and we all know the story. And it's it's amazing what humanity is capable of. I just went through a, a fascinating documentary that said in World War II, 71 million people were killed. 71 million people were killed. Most of them civilians. Civilians. And how do you get, how do you kill 71 million people? There are not enough soldiers to do that. You've got to turn everybody, everybody into a murderer. And that's, that's exactly what happened in the, uh, the psychology of this mass uh, formation where people begin to believe the lie that these people are the enemy and they turn each other in. And, you know, humanity is capable of the most horrendous thing. We've been for a couple hundred years sheltered from that. It goes on now in, in lots of places where there's Muslim um, conflicts. But, but I think we're kind, of, we're kind of back to the way it was before Christianity even arrived. I think Christianity has come made its impact and this culture has rejected it and paraded itself right straight through Romans chapter one. So I, I wouldn't expect anything less than um, mounting persecution against the church, which has always been a blessing to the church because when people are persecuted, it purges the church. People, people don't wanna be persecuted for something they're pretending to believe, right? You're not gonna be a fake Christian if they send you to the Gulag, mm. you're not going to do that. So uh, persecution purifies the church, and that that's that's the good part. And I'm I'm praying that it I'm praying that there is a judgment begins at the house of God, and
0: I'm praying that we'll see that happen. Yeah, very good. As we look at the church and as we think about uh, your ministry here, uh, you have been the pastor of Grace Community Church here for some 53 years. Mm-hmm so at what point did you come to embrace the doctrines of grace well i think i always believed the doctrines of
1: grace obviously when i was very young in my 20s i don't know that i had the refined understanding i don't know that i would have been able to give a full orbed um, defense of every doctrine of grace but i i was always a believer in them uh, and I, when I was in seminary, toward the end of my seminary days, I started reading the Puritans. So this would have been, um, graduating from seminary when I did in 1964, this would have been five years before I came to Grace. So it was from the last year or so in seminary, in the intervening few years, that I was really kind of boning up on Reformed theology. So by the time I landed here, I, I was convinced. And... Um, one of the things that I wanted to do, and this was kind of an underlying uh, commitment in my heart, was to exposit the entire New Testament. And I thought not only would that be the greatest thing I could do in my life to provide uh, for the congregation the whole New Testament explained and applied, but I also thought that could test my theology. If, if my theology, if, if the convictions that I held theologically were true, they would stand the test of exposition. So your theology goes into the fire in every text, right? And it, it, has to, it has to survive the fire of every text, every text. You know, I was looking at the internet the other day and some wistful girl said, how I became a Calvinist and left Calvinism. Well, the, the, the sophomoric comment like that from somebody who uh, should keep her thoughts to herself because she has no idea what she's talking about, is to be measured against someone who for 50 years has taken every text of the Bible and, and put doctrine into that text and see if it survives. And I can say that it has. Mm. So it's, um, it's a stronger conviction and uh, in no sense is there any part of my understanding of the doctrines of grace That has been weakened. Everything has been intensified and strengthened in all these years of
0: study. So you never had one of those cage stage moments for you where you came out of, you know, a a more Arminian belief and you were sort of radical in your views of, of Calvinism like you see that's so common with a lot of men. No, I never did. I don't know that as a young guy listening to my dad
1: preach, that I thought of myself as a Calvinist because Calvinism then, I only knew of one Calvinistic church in Southern California, and it was a bunch of uh, Dutch guys in black suits who looked pretty miserable most of the time. And all they did was talk about Calvinism, and they had no evangelistic zeal. And I knew about that church because it was close to where I was. So that was the kind of Calvinism I saw, but that was very different than the way I could see Scripture unfolding. And uh, I, I came to the conviction that I believed the doctrines of grace, but I didn't want to be that kind of Calvinist. I didn't want to be so deterministic that I lost all sense of application, of life, evangelism, zeal, passion. Um, and I think a balanced view of the doctrines of grace keeps all that intact.
0: Mm very good one of the things that's so common within evangelicalism today is this idea of god told me it's this language god told me they they use it almost as an ace of spades to throw down to convince people that what they're saying is authoritative and as we hear people speak like that uh, what does that do as it pertains to say the sufficiency of scripture uh, when we think about the bible being a, a, a one book, God's book that has one voice, 66 unique books uh, that make up this one unique book, the Word of God. And we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. So when we hear people talking like that, when we hear people making comments like that and using this God told me language as if they're talking about visions or revelations or dreams Mm -hmm. or hearing God speak to them on their back porch, What would be your counsel to people who continue to speak that way, whether it be in conference settings or writing books about this? I mean, there's a whole genre today called heavenly tourism, where people are taking these journeys to heaven and coming back to tell us things that are already in the Bible. So what would be your counsel to people that continue to further that agenda today?
1: Well, and, and I would I would say it's not only the radical people that have furthered that agenda. It goes back to people like Henry Blackaby mm-hmm. writing curriculum for the SBC. And you know that very well. And tr- trying to teach people how to listen for the voice of God. You, you, that, that's a very popular notion. You, you hear very, very popular, well-known You would think mature pastors talking about listening for the voice of God. Um, The the fact of the matter is God has spoken, but He has spoken in His Word. And if you claim anything in addition to His Word as divine revelation, shall be added to you the plagues that are written in it. That is about as stern a warning as you could get, and that's how the entire Bible ends. Don't take anything away and don't add anything, or what will be added to you, you won't be too happy about. you have, the, the, the goal, of, one of the goals of every pastor, every preacher, every church leader, every elder is to protect the sole authority of Scripture. If we leak on that, then we've really lost our grip on the truth. I remember listening to a charismatic uh, or moderately charismatic guy say, When Tom or Sally stand up in your church and say, Thus saith the Lord, we know he either did say that or he didn't. Well, I I suppose um, that seemed like a simple explanation to him, but that's exactly the point. We don't know. If if you don't know whether God said it, then why would you claim authority? You know, the, the Apostle Paul who was caught up into the third heaven came back and said, that he saw things that that he couldn't even speak. He was not permitted to speak. Why wasn't he permitted to speak? Why didn't Paul tell us what he saw when he went to heaven? Because this was beyond Scripture. Even Paul, he actually had a trip to heaven, not a bogus one to write a silly book. He actually had a trip to heaven, saw things wonderful to behold, but couldn't make a single reference to them but rather went on to talk about his his humility, his humiliation, his thorn in the flesh, his weakness and all of that. So the apostle Paul, think about it, who wrote 13 of the New Testament books, outside those 13 books, couldn't even give a report on his trip to heaven. That's, that's That's pretty hard and fast. Because once you allow for revelation beyond scripture, then the, the, the idea of authority is cut loose from the boundaries of Holy Scripture. And I think um, Jude makes it clear when he says, we proclaim a once for all delivered to the saints' faith. In other words, as a body of revelation, it was once, once for all delivered, not dribbled out sequentially for the next 2,000 years. And when people say that, they may be talking about some kind of emotional impulse or some kind of pattern of thought. But you can make the promise that at no point is God now revealing Scripture to anyone. I think there's an analogy to that that um, might help. When you look at the created universe, you have to understand that God made it all in six days. And he hasn't created anything since then. It's pretty remarkable. He hasn't Mm. created anything since then. The water that he created in Genesis 1 is the water that you drink now. Everything that he created is in existence. None of it has disappeared except it's gone to ashes and then it's recycled as matter. He only created once. He created the universe the way it is, and nothing has been added to his creation. And I think it's that way with Scripture. He inspired by his Spirit the the Word of God, the Holy Scripture. And that was the, the, the end of the revelation, and it was complete and finished. And it's an irresponsible thing for people to say, the Lord told me this it's um, it's kind of a spiritual one-upsmanship, you know. You, you, as if I I can't argue with you because the Lord told you something. Uh, I, I've I've suggested that how do you know when it's the Lord? I mean, does the red light go on on your head and blink when it's the Lord? How do you know when it's the Lord? Well, if you don't know, and you're not certain, then um, you can't say it was the Lord. And and I would suggest to you that. It's not the Lord because He's already deposited His once-for-all delivered revelation.
0: Amen. I've spoken to you in the past about the influence that your grandfather and your father has left upon you. As you look at church history, who is these, the, the, the figure, the guy, the person who's left an indelible mark upon you?
1: Well, I think primarily, obviously, the Lord Himself... Uh, And that's that. That's largely a function of how much of my mind is spent looking at Christ. If you understand that, um, you know, take take the New Testament as a starting point. uh, I preached through the book of Matthew, and it took almost ten years. I preached through the book of Luke, and it took another ten years. I preached through the, the Gospel of John five years and then five years again. So that's 30 years and I'm still looking at Christ and then gone through the Gospel of Mark. Um, and then you get into the book of Acts and in the book of Acts you, you you have the the incarnation and life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospels and then you have the proclamation of Jesus in the book of Acts. and uh, And then you have the epistles which deal with the theology of Christ, what he came to accomplish, the great truths of salvation. And so everything continues to circle around Christ until you get to the book of Revelation and it's the consummation and the glory of Christ. And then when you go to the Old Testament, you're sort of in a Luke 24 experience. You're, You're seeing where in the law and the prophets and the holy writings, they're speaking of me, as he said in Luke 24. So the dominating figure in my mind for all these many, many years has been the person of Christ. Um, and the, there's, there's no hesitancy on my part to say I can never get close to having enough. And neither can the people in this church. I remember when I finished the whole New Testament and I kind of posed the question, where, where should we go? They, they wanted to go back to the Gospel of John. They, they never get enough of that. And uh, But just to go one step beyond that, I would say the person apart from the Lord who has occupied the most of my mind is the Apostle Paul. And again, because he's such a featured person through the book of Acts and in 13 epistles that he has a dominant influence, and uh, I know so much about his life from all those years of study, and I find in him a model of life and ministry that... I can at least approximate. Whereas Christ is the one I would like to become like, Paul is the one that uh, is more attainable because he had his weaknesses and his failures as well. So I think those guys have had an an immense impact on me. There have been a few um, Puritan writers. Um, Thomas Watson was the first Puritan that I was kind of exposed to, but of, of more contemporary men, Probably my interest was more directly uh, in Martin Lloyd-Jones, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, than any other sort of modern preacher. He died in the late 1900s. But there, there was so much parallel. Um, as soon as I discovered him, I realized that he thought the way I thought. And we had so much in common I never expected it to happen, but his family who ran the Martin Lloyd-Jones Trust in England eventually contacted me and said, we, we distribute all of his tapes and we would like to ask if you would give us all of your tapes so we could have the doctor and you partnering in, in this ministry. And, and I realized at that point that they had come to the same conclusion as I had, that we had so much in common. So he had an immense influence on, on me. Another guy who had a great impact on my preaching was named S. Lewis Johnson. You can Google that name, S. Lewis Johnson. You can find some of his great sermons. Just a a, a Reformation man, if ever there was one. Brilliant, uh, gifted preacher, great expositor, and and not as well-known because he didn't write books. But there are some of his sermons around that uh, were greatly beneficial. and He helped me uh, learn how to to exposit the Scripture and get focused on the message.
0: Very good. Take us on a journey from, from day to day, or just in a brief survey, if you would, take us on a journey from your desk to the pulpit on the Lord's Day. So what does a typical week in preparation for preaching look like for you?
1: Well, um, Monday is kind of a recovery day, typically for me, just um, coming down from and debriefing and dealing with whatever collateral things occurred on the Lord's Day. But it really by Tuesday, I'm I'm geared up because they need a sermon title and a text, and that's not a challenge because I know when I'm going through a book what's coming. So before I can give them a title, I have to begin to to. Uh, connect the dots in the next text, and so I do that. So by Tuesday, I'm already thinking about that message. And then it's a question of, uh, for most of the years that I've done this, I've done two messages, one in the morning and one at night, so I had to have both kind of primed and ready to to tackle by Tuesday or Wednesday at the latest. And, And then I would just go into the study, and it would usually take me a day to a day and a half per sermon, And then obviously the the rest of the time is all the interruptions that come your way as a shepherd and a pastor and the people you deal with and staff and ministry and radio and all the other stuff and writing books and all of that. But um, I always put that uh, as the low priority. The sermon was always the main priority and I always felt like the best time that I had, the freshest time, was to be given to the sermon. So it was the, the morning time. Usually I'd be up and in my study and doing it my best to get my study done and craft the sermon as, as early in the week as I could. I, didn't, I, I never would do a sermon on Saturday because I didn't want to be ever in a situation where I had to make up my mind about a difficult interpretive issue um, with pressure from the clock. So by Friday, I would have everything kind of laid out and just use Saturday to kind of reprocess it and go over it in my mind and make sure I I took care of the final details. Uh, Saturday was a day I I didn't like to do anything. I I didn't like the distractions because I was kind of honed in on that. But still, with kids and family and life, there, there would be distractions. So I learned through the years to compartmentalize myself a little bit. But Sunday morning, up early, by six o'clock, and ready to uh, come down to the church uh, ahead of time to just make one more run through my notes, and to do whatever I need to do in preparation for the service. But so many good quality people around here who cover the details that there's not always a lot for me to do, and and then I'm by by Saturday afternoon at some point I'm. I'm pretty well loaded, locked and loaded and ready to go.
0: Dr. MacArthur, thank you for sitting down this conversation for the G3 podcast. My pleasure. Thanks, Josh. God bless you. Thank you. (laughs)